0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now take our Bibles and let's read together from the book of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be saved. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. We now go to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, where the Lord Jesus Christ quotes these words from the prophecy of Isaiah. Matthew 13 That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plant was scorched. The plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Before I preach the gospel to you, I'd like to read with you again the text from verse 11, when Isaiah said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, what do you find when you pick up your mail during the month of December? Surely it's all the same. Flyers from Walmart and Home Depot advertising for Christmas. And when you read your local newspaper or tune in to talkback radio, the discussions are all about Christmas, what you might like to have for Christmas, what you might like to do, with your family for Christmas, what you might give to other people less fortunate than you so that they can have a good Christmas. And of course, some people complain because children are being given Bibles at school. But nobody seems to mind that every supermarket, every department store, every toy store is telling us what we need to celebrate Christmas. Christmas, we are told, means open your purse, take out your credit card and spend. The message of Christmas continues to be as it has been for years. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come ye, O come ye to Walmart and Home Depot. Come and behold the bargains that we offer you and make this Christmas a happy one for you and your family. And then, of course, as God's children, we don't trust the world to tell us how to celebrate Christmas. No, because Christmas is God's party. At Christmas, we celebrate God's gift to a world that was desperately messed up. And so, this morning, we want God to tell us what Christmas is all about. And if there is one book in the Bible which focuses on Christmas... It must be Isaiah. Because Isaiah, he knew what God had promised to the Israelites. Isaiah understood that those Israelites should have been living in a land flowing with milk and honey, where each man could live in safety under his own vine and his own fig tree. Everything that you or I might want for Christmas, God had promised to the Israelites And so, all that, Isaiah is waiting for, longing for. But in our text, the Lord says, wait a minute, Isaiah, all those beautiful things which I promised, all those wonderful things which you can't wait to see, they won't be happening anytime soon. Instead, I am going to take the Israelites on a long and painful detour. First, they must all become blind and deaf and unbelieving. You see, Isaiah, I don't want them to hear the gospel. I don't want them to understand. I don't want them to repent or believe. Instead, I want them to stay unbelieving so that I can punish them severely, painfully, until their cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until their houses are left deserted and their fields are ruined and ravaged. I don't want the children of Israel to repent and believe. Instead, they must all go into exile. The promised land must be utterly forsaken. And then, then after the Lord has so destroyed the Israelites, when one-tenth of them are only remaining so that 90% of them have died or been taken away into exile, when you think that God's punishment must finally be enough, then God's going to come back with even more pain, even worse punishment. All this must happen before the church of the Old Testament can celebrate Christmas and when we understand this beloved congregation, then we discover the first part of the Christmas gospel, the part of the Christmas gospel which we don't find in the Christmas flyers or the Christmas carols. With this message, God wants to prepare our hearts so that we can truly rejoice in the gospel of Christmas. I preach to you the gospel of Christmas under the following theme, God prepares his people to celebrate Christmas via the detour. Via the detour of horrible destruction. And we pay attention to two points. How horrible the detour of destruction is and how awesome the gospel of Christmas is. God prepares his people to celebrate Christmas via the detour of horrible destruction we consider first how horrible the detour of destruction is. Now, the days of our text are the second golden age of Israel's history. The first golden age was the time of King David and King Solomon. After that, there was a period of decline. But in our text, both Judah under King Azariah, and Israel under King Jeroboam are stable countries with strong armies and healthy economies, everything is going well. And no wonder, because when our text happens, in the year that King Isaiah died, well, King Azariah he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And his son Jotham, who is replacing him, is also a godly man. So in the year of our text... At the time when King Isaiah dies and King Jotham takes over, the prophet Isaiah has got every reason to be optimistic about the future. But no, says God in our text, no. Judah has got a faithful king, but I will not bless Judah. King Jotham is godly and just. He supports the temple worship. He judges according to God's law, but, says God, still I will not bless Judah. And we scratch our heads. We ask why. We wonder how this is possible. Well, brothers and sisters, God does not only see the king and the official work done by the leaders of the nation, God does not only notice what happens in the public worship service. Instead, God sees inside the heart of every single congregation member. God knows the thoughts, the desires of every man, woman and child. God hears all our conversation. God sees every detail of every private life. And in the days of our text, Judah has got a godly king. Everything in the temple is arranged to a T, but, but the private lives of God's people are all wrong. They do not put God first in their everyday life, in their business, their family life, or their personal life. And this makes the Lord so angry that He says to Isaiah, enough, game over. I don't want my people to hear the gospel anymore. I don't want them to repent anymore. Instead, I want them to stay in this sin because if they stay in this sin, I will have a good reason to destroy them completely. Brothers and sisters, in the days of our text, if we could look at that church, we would say, this is a faithful church. We would say they have got the marks of the true church the full preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments and a form of church discipline as well. But God looks below the surface. God sees that their hearts are wrong and their private life offends him no end. And that's why God is determined to destroy them completely. And now we need to stop and get this straight in our minds, brothers and sisters. Because make no mistake, those Israelites in our text, they want to be children of God. They want to live under the blessing of God. Of course they do. Why else would they bother with their sacrifices and the temple worship? They obviously are believing that they need the blessing of God because otherwise... They would never bother to organize their church life so strictly. So there's something right. There's something right in Israel. But while their temple worship is exactly the way which God has commanded, their private life is slowly veering off, drifting further and further away from the standard which God has set in his word. Temple worship Official religion, it's great. But what God's children are doing in their homes and in their business the other six days of the week, that's not so good. And this, this should not surprise us, brothers and sisters. Because when we look at our church life, and now of course I'm not talking about Langley in particular, instead of talking about reformed congregations in general. When we look at our church life in our church, we are very careful to do what's right. What we sing in church, what a woman may or may not do in church, what is or what is not allowed to happen in the church building. Everything that happens officially in the church We organize very carefully and it has to be based exactly on the word of God. We don't want to change it unless there is a biblical reason for it to change. That's in church. But when we come out of what is strictly church life, when our young people have their Bible study meetings, for example, they feel quite free to praise the Lord in different ways than we do in our worship service. Many of us have toys in the house, electronic gadgetry. I could be old-fashioned and mention television, the Xbox. What biblical reasons did we have that convinced us that these toys should belong in Christian homes? And going back to music for a moment, the music that we listen to in our cars, in our homes or at work. For many of us, our music is also quite different from the music that our parents used to enjoy. On all these points, we change and we don't need biblical reasons to change. Please understand me, brothers and sisters. I am not saying that we always have to sing psalms or hymns from the psalm book. Neither am I saying that change is good or bad. Instead, we need to understand that the Israelites in our text, they held on to a pure form of worship. But that was not enough because their Sunday worship was totally isolated from their daily life. And that means if we don't think carefully about the Christian songs that we sing, if we don't think carefully about every part of our life, having a pure worship service on Sunday is not going to help us any more than it helped the Israelites in our text. And beloved congregation, our text says more about the pattern of our daily life because we all have our ups and our downs, don't we? Sometimes we're living close to God and we are careful to do what God commands. We say no to all kinds of temptation. But other times we all get a bit slack and our habits are not quite so healthy. Young men and young ladies, high school students especially, you all know from your Bible classes at school that the people of Israel in the days of the judges they also had their regular spiritual highs and spiritual lows. You all remember, I'm sure, how they often did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the Lord sent enemies to punish them. And then they would repent. And forth the Lord would send a judge to save them from their enemies. Sin, punishment, repentance and salvation. You all know that this cycle was repeated over and over again, especially in the days of the judges. And it's how it goes in our life too. But in our text, the Lord says that this cycle of sin and punishment and repentance and salvation, that cycle, it must be broken for once and for all. From now on, when the Israelite sin says, God, I will punish them. But after that punishment, there won't be any repentance and there won't be any salvation either. Instead, from now on, says God, from now on, when the Israelites sin, I will punish and I will punish more and I will punish even more. And I won't stop punishing them until the whole nation is lying in ruins. So what's happening in our text? God is changing the rules. What's happening in our text? God is outlining a new way for him to deal with Israel's sin. Before our text, sin was always the beginning of a new cycle that led to punishment, repentance and salvation. But now God is traveling a new road. God is traveling the road that must ultimately lead to the cradle in Bethlehem and to the cross of Golgotha. Before, again, before, in the time before our text, in the days of the judges and the kings, when God punished the Israelites, they repented. They were sorry for their sins and they were determined to change. But, says God in our text, when children of God, sin, then sorry is not good enough and a promise to try harder next time does not help. That kind of repentance is not sufficient because it does not deal with the problem of sin. And that's why, says God in a text, when I now call the Israelites to repentance, I will close their eyes, I will block their ears, I will harden their hearts because their sin must grow and it must grow even bigger because through the Israelites hardening in sin, I will find another way. Indeed, I will create an effective way to deal with sin. When the burden of Israel's sin has grown so much that the measure is full, says God, then I will execute my justice then I will punish sin. I will pour out the full burden of my wrath. And this, this is the gospel of salvation in our text, beloved congregation. God says the problem of sin is so serious that it needs a better solution than just discipline and correction. The problem of sin is so serious that it demands the curse of the cross. It demands the pain of God forsaken us. It demands the agony of darkness, the ultimate punishment of death. This is the only way for a just God to deal with the problem of sin because nothing else works. The whole Old Testament shows it again and again and again. Sin leads to punishment. Punishment leads to repentance But the problem of sin is never overcome. The enemy, sin, is never defeated. Instead, it comes back again and again and again. So, thanks be to God, on Christmas Day, the Son of God comes into the world. He preaches the gospel. He calls the Israelites to repent. Then, yes, What happens then, brothers and sisters? What must happen when Jesus preaches the gospel and calls the Israelites to repent? What must happen? Well, if those Israelites would listen to Jesus, if those Israelites would repent and believe in Jesus, if those Israelites would accept him as their king, what then? How would God save his people then? That's why God's plan for the salvation of the world announced in Isaiah 6. God's plan that the Israelites may not listen. They may not see. They may not hear. They may not turn and be saved. When Jesus comes into the world, that same plan must be fulfilled all over again. Jesus must be rejected by the Israelites. Jesus must be nailed to the cross. And then, then, in his body, God will deal once and for all with the problem of sin. On the cross of Golgotha, God will punish Israel's sin, and your sin, and my sin, when he destroys his son. There, we will all die. We will all die to sin in the death of the Son of God, and after three hours of hellish agony, after three hours of bearing God's wrath, when Jesus declares that it is finished, then and only then, all the sins of Israel and all your sins and all my sins, they're gone. They're gone forever. Christmas is the solution to the problem of sin. Because Christmas brings Jesus Christ into the picture and Jesus will do what nobody else, what nothing else can do. He will pay for sin. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, when we read a Bible book like Judges, it all seems so easy. The Israelites sin and God disciplines them and then they only have to repent and God saves them. It seems so easy as if we only have to say sorry and promise to try harder next time, and God's okay with that. So in our text, God focuses our hearts. God focuses our minds on the cross of Golgotha. God says there is only one way for me to deal with sin, and that is wrath, punishment, destruction. That's the only way. To understand the meaning of Christmas, we need to understand and believe that Christmas is God's solution to an awful problem, the problem of our sin. Christmas makes it possible for God to actually deal with our sins and put them away. In our second point, we will now see how awesome the gospel of Christmas really is. In our text, the Old Testament church is compared to a tree, a terebinth, or an oak. But that's not a healthy tree or a useful tree. So it's cut down. It's burned in the fire. All that is left is a stump. And the point is, the point is that for the Old Testament church, as well as for the New Testament church, in itself, God's people God's church is totally dead. There is nothing in the people, nothing in the church that God finds useful or attractive. So why not dig up the roots? Why not destroy it completely once and for all? Obviously, it is good for nothing. But now, hear the gospel of Christmas. Israel The Old Testament church is this dead tree which has been totally cut down. Israel is this good-for-nothing stump. But on Christmas Day, this dead tree miraculously produces a seed and that seed is not dead but alive. Who says? Who says that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit? It can. Obviously it can. For on Christmas Day, God Almighty took what was dead, that nation of Israel, long dead in its sin. And of that dead tree was born the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And the awesome nature of this miracle is highlighted by the fact that Jesus is born of a virgin, Mary. Because virgins don't have children. That's impossible. But on Christmas Day, almighty God does the impossible. On Christmas Day, God takes a virgin, a woman who cannot possibly have a baby. And out of that woman is born the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Out of death, God produces life. Out of darkness, God produces light into a world that is full of hatred and hypocrisy, pain and death. In a church full of people, who sin and break God's covenant and do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here God sends his only begotten son with the gospel of sovereign grace and heavenly life. Before Christmas, everything was dead. But Christmas means God miraculously gives life. And when our text refers to Jesus Christ as holy seed, brothers and sisters, we need to say a little bit more about repentance. Because we already saw in our first point that repentance means admitting that we were wrong, turning around and starting over. We saw in our first point that in the Old Testament, in the days of the judges especially, when God punished the Israelites, they did repent. They tried hard to change. They did their best to put sin out of their lives. And we already saw that in Isaiah 6, God said, trying to change is not enough. And doing your best is not good enough either. The point is, brothers and sisters, that especially after Christmas, especially after God sent his son into the world to save us, God is not interested in a congregation of people who try hard to do our best. Because with all our best efforts, we are still no better than those Israelites in the days of Isaiah. With all our best efforts, we are still no better than a dead tree, a cut-off stump that can produce nothing good. But... Beloved congregation, the miracle of Christmas, where a dead tree brings forth a holy seed, a living seed, that same miracle can be reproduced, that miracle can be fulfilled in our hearts and in our lives. Because when we connect to Jesus Christ by a true and living faith, when we believe in him, then the Holy Spirit who gave heavenly life in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That same Holy Spirit will also change our hearts. He will also change our lives. Then the holy seed of our text. He will live in our hearts. He will produce fruit. Fruit of faith. Fruit of thankfulness. Fruit of holiness. Fruit of humble repentance. Then then we will no longer feel enormous pressure to be good. We will no longer feel enormous pressure to show ourselves to be good like the Pharisees because the Spirit, he will give us power to will and to work for God's good pleasure. In the time before Isaiah, the Israelites sinned. When they repented, they tried hard to do what God wanted them to do. But in our text, God says, I don't want the Israelites to be half decent people. Instead, I first want to show them what they are truly like. I first want them to hear, but not understand, to see, but not perceive. Because I first want to teach them the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone to teach them to know themselves, I want them to discover and to confess that life, true life, and holy living, it's not to be found in here. It comes only from Jesus Christ, the holy seed, the living seed. I want God's people to discover that when they are connected to him, they can live and they will live Forever. Truly beloved people of God, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every single one of us to our own way. In the Old Testament, there were many times when the Israelites loved God and they wanted God's blessing. And then they were quite happy to say sorry to God for everything that they did wrong. But in attacks, God says, sorry does not help. Sorry does not take away sin. Instead, I need to deal with sin. And the way that God dealt with sin was to leave the Israelites in this sin and let them sink further and further down to teach them that they had no hope and no help in themselves. But then the gospel on Christmas Day God sent his son into the world. On the cross of Golgotha, God punished all our sins in the body and the soul of his son. That is the gospel of Christmas. And that gospel continues. Jesus Christ has done more than pay for our sins. Because the son of God also sent his Holy Spirit into the world to be a seed in our hearts, to transform us, to give us life, true life, eternal life. And because we have the Holy Spirit, we don't just do our best. We don't just try our hardest to please God by our own efforts. Instead, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. By his power we live, by faith in Jesus Christ. When we praise God with our songs of praise and worship, we live when we tell our neighbors about the awesome gospel of christmas we live when we celebrate god's goodness when we do our daily work when we live as children of a heavenly father who is gracious and merciful when we depend on him we live when we know god when we know the true meaning of christmas then we live my brother my sister What else could anybody ask for Christmas? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.